Hello, welcome to another edition of Raw. My name's Tom Latcham. Welcome to the show. Well, there's simply no way of getting away from it. Drum and bass is massive. And a lot of that is down to the great, long and ongoing success of Hospital Records, which since being founded around 25 years ago, has helped take the music from an underground scene to a commercial juggernaut. And today, as we cover more content from the current rave scene, Raw welcomes Hospital's co-founder, Tony Coleman, aka DJ and producer, London Electricity. So let's uh, bring him in and say hello to him. How you doing, mate? You all right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. It's a beautiful day today. Which makes and, a change. Um, <laughs> it does, yeah. I'm, I'm just preparing um, what's turned into a kind of epic documentary-style podcast on um, on my album Crikey that came out last week, which is uh, yikes, 10 years old. And I've got like Elsa Esmeralda's delivered absolutely loads of um, sound bites, which is, which is wicked. So I'm, I'm really going in on that. So, yeah, life is good. Life is fun. Um, good. Good to well, be here. We've got a lot to cram in, so let's crack on with it. And the reason why we've got a lot to cram in is, as I say, you've been in, uh, in the rave scene for something like 25 years. You're 60 now. You're, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. If I am, you're going to tell me yep. off. You're recovering from a hip operation. Uh, what Correct. keeps you going? Um, what keeps me going? I just have to surrender myself to... I surrender myself to life and music. And um, my love for music really is one of the things that keeps me going, definitely. You know, there's there's no kind of like, there's no magic um, potion or anything. Um, but I'm just, I'm very, very lucky in a way to, I mean, I've worked very hard at it, but I'm lucky to be surrounded by amazing people who are all kind of tuned to the cause, as it were. So, um, and the drum and bass scene as a whole is, it's an amazing place. You know, it's really, really positive. There's so much love. I mean, you had Frost on recently and he is an absolute don. You know, he is so, so positive, so switched on. And if I'm struggling, like just getting overwhelmed psychologically with, with things like last year was was quite quite full on you know i would just go, go around frost's house and and we just kind of like we just both vent and support each other and just love each other really it's and that's what it's all about you know it's all about love well you've had so much success through hospital how much of your career as an artist and a, a label owner has been planned and deliberate and how much has been something of a happy accident uh none of it's been planned at all. Really? I find that hard to believe because it's you, it, it looks like there's a path has been followed that no. has brought you huge success as an independent but massive no. independent label. It's been it's just been a series of um reactive decisions and uh massive risks that for the most part have been judged quite well. Right. So you, you can't you can't achieve anything different if you don't take huge risks and you know just to use a, a vernacular, you've got to put your balls on the table sometimes. <laughs> and uh, hopefully not hopefully not during this interview, Tony. No, no, <laughs> I'm putting in my pants right now. 
um, what, what what is it that you think that drum and bass has got so right to become the, the, what it is now, which is a, a, a massive scene with festivals holding thousands and thousands of people, including your own hospitalities? Mm. I think what drum and bass has got right for the most part, and there's always exceptions that prove the rule, but um, you mentioned earlier that hospital is a, a massive commercial success, yet we fervently believe in the underground. And anybody who who works in music or in, in any aspect of music who does things purely to try and make money, it's not going to work for them. You know, it really isn't because it doesn't, it shows. Everyone knows. People in drone base know. They know if something is cynically commercial and, uh, or they know if something is really derivative and just copying what's going on, you know, or people who make, people who make tunes for a certain sound, for a certain DJ, for, you know, it's transparent. You can see right through it. Do you think and, the, the modern drum and bass scene now is mainstream or still underground? It's very much underground. I mean, there are some spin-off mainstream successes. Uh, and the I think the, re the reason that true junglists and drum and bass heads don't really get on with that kind of commercial success is inevitably it changes what the producer does because they suddenly find themselves in this totally different world where they've got managers, they've got um, people delivering them top lines from top singers and suddenly they are in the pop machine and that inevitably gravitates them away from what drum and bass and jungle is. But Andy C has just sold out Wembley Arena in 20 minutes. That's clearly suggesting of mainstream he flies around the world uh doing big gigs you know having to quarantine for two weeks in in auckland clearly making it worthwhile financially to do so this is not though that that level is not a sign of the underground is it it is because if you if you listen to what andy plays um most of his set is actually made up of underground drum and bass classics with anthems that are broken through. Um, but Andy doesn't play cheese. That's what makes him such a great DJ. You know, he, he's, he's, he's not only a technically brilliant uh, DJ performer, he's also a great selector. And I, I would argue that his success and the success of drum and bass events when they are successful that's not that that's basically because of the roots of drum and bass and jungle and it's such a sincere genre and that's why people come in their thousands to events to be part of the drum and bass family because they they sense that that's that's what's happening that this is something really, really honest and unique. And it's it's almost unlike any other genre, to be honest. And how big a role do you feel that you 
personally uh, through your work and also through your label have played in making the scene what it is today where we see all these uh, you know the, which 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 sort of allows Andy C to operate at that level <laughs> um I don't think Andy would think that we allow him to do anything we don't no, but you know but you know we, what I mean don't you I mean like we the, the sort of evolution of hospital in events um, in year 2000, we we suddenly realised that we really need um, somewhere where people are going to play our music or we can play our music and our artists' music <laughs> because we were still, in, that, in the year 2000, we were still viewed as um, that sort of quirky uh sort of lounge core funny little label mm. um so we we took a step to do herbal on friday nights and everyone was like you can't you can't do a, a liquid sort of headline on a friday night it can only be wednesday night when swerve is you know <laughs> but we smashed it and we never had any ambitions to make it big it was just like this is our nice little home and we stayed there for a few years you know five years and uh it was great you know her the herbal sessions were brilliant and we made it work i, I came up with the name hospitality which just seemed obvious really because we were called a hospital um sometimes the most obvious things are the best things mm -hmm. you know that's proven to be good and it was we didn't have an events team then. It was me, Chris, and Tom, the Tomahawk. We were like sort of masterminding all of this. And when I say masterminding, we were just doing it. I mean, I did the till. I did the guest list every night. My wife did the till. Lady Culminator, she did the guest list. And we hung the banners up. Um, we took them down at the end of the night. And that was it, you know. We did it all, everything ourselves, went out flyering the whole lot because we couldn't afford to pay anyone to do it. So we did it and it worked. And then Herbal started to go a little bit, mm, there were some drugs being sold and the bouncers, you know. So uh, Not drugs, not in, yeah. the, not in the rave scene. I know, I know, but it got a bit kind of like gang gangstery. You know, there was a gang who was operating. Right. So... Uh, Hello. <laughs> um, yeah, so we we took a plunge and thought, sorry, this is jump one of those cliffs we jumped off and just thought, let's do heaven. And Chris went and saw the owners of heaven and spoke to them, and they were like really up for it because obviously they knew about rage back in the day, and they were like, yeah, let's let's do a Friday night because they had house was fixed on saturday night but they they had some empty friday nights and we went in and we thought well there's nothing ventured nothing gained you know and our agent said you're mad <laughs> you're just mad and he, he came along we sold out the first the first night and it was electric it was amazing i remember staying on standing on stage with my agent and with chris and just looking out and thinking wow this is unbelievable. So and it was turning to your agent and going, I thought, I'm not fucking mad. Yeah. <laughs> it was a it was a headlining liquid 
night in a what was then a big club you know massive for us it seemed huge you know five rooms and we had um i remember in room three um we had benga um and rusco i think they were 200 quid for both of them <laughs> and uh, and it was proper dubstep in there like proper early dubstep you know it, this we're talking 2005 2006 so it was really really nice good plastic people style early dubstep right and it, it was brilliant it was an amazing amazing night at heaven it really was and so we got comfortable there and it was like unbelievably profitable as well because i think we only had to hire the venue and we they took the bar we took the door um and it was it was happy happy days back then you know i think it was about 1200 quid to hire the venue so is it the events that have really given you the platform to grow as as a label to allow you to maybe take some risks as a label because you know you're making you're gonna, you're gonna make some good money on on the events um <clears throat> no the events have never made they've never been more profitable than the label right so because the events are so visible i think people do make that assumption but behind the scenes what makes hospital records um a company that really does work it's because we we work every single angle diligently and we pay our artists every single micro cent and penny mm. um and they come first you know they have to be paid first no one do you else think do you think that that set you, set you apart from some of the uh labels that might have existed prior to hospital at the time, yeah. And actually, I saw it. I knew that I wanted, having done labels before and having been on labels, I knew that this had to be a central philosophy of hospital was to make sure all the artists get paid properly. Because I just knew that if artists knew how honest we were, that would be a, a major kind of feather in our cap. And a, a, at the time, a unique selling point in a way. Um, a lot of labels since have emerged and I guess they've realized looking at how attracted people are to hospital they've they've realized all oh, well, that yeah we've got to do it like that you know we've got to pay people if we get a reputation of not paying people it's a killer you know it really is so um and the big cliff that we jumped off as a label in 2000 and Two two thousand three was was shortly after iTunes emerged, and there was no drum base on iTunes at all. And I made it our priority to uh, to get to know the people in London who were running iTunes and get us on there direct. And we did. Two thousand three, I think, yeah, two thousand three to the middle of two thousand four, we were the only drum base on. Mm -hmm itunes and we smashed it absolutely smashed it and ever since then because we got in right at the start we've had a very very good direct relationship with apple so 
And I remember when we did that, I went to see our distributor, SRD, who at the time were brilliant kind of physical distributor, and they literally laughed at me. I said, <laughs> no, MP3s are never going to, they're never going to catch on. You know, download them. Gonna, you know. <laughs> they might still do, Tony. You never know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and it, it's doing that, you know, it's being prepared to take risks and follow them through and also sensing, just just really sensing the market and sensing the business, not not from a cynical, ah, we're going to make more money sort of point of view, but really so that we can survive and still be here and still be releasing great music, helping artists to have careers and bringing, bringing our love through our music to whoever wants to be part of it. Well, that's uh, how you set up the label and how it's grown. We'll go into that in more depth shortly here on Raw. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to search, uh, go back to some of your early years and find out where those inspirations came from as a child growing up in the swing in 60s in London. <laughs> We really hope you're enjoying yet another one of Raw's in-depth interviews about the rave scene, which we are proud to say are now all curated into the British Library Sound Archive. All of us here at Raw HQ love how much you love what we do, and your generous one-off donations have been a huge help in covering our initial costs. But we're now a team of five, putting in a combined 80 hours a week for no wages, with big plans to expand further, and so our costs are going up. As such, we could really use your help to keep Raw growing and developing, as you've seen us do since our launch in July 2020. First up, go and check out our brand new website. It's rawuk.com, where you can find loads of cool extra content, and you can grab Raw's first ever range of merchandise. That's rawuk.com for our new flashy website. We've also launched a new membership scheme where you can support us financially to create more content on an ongoing basis for less than the price of an oat milk cappuccino. Plus, you get great perks in return. Head to patreon.com forward slash raw UK pods. That's patreon.com forward slash raw UK pods to see exactly what's on offer. You can also join our YouTube membership, which is basically the same. Uh, or if you're not asked about a membership, but you'd like to support us with a few quid as a one-off or a repeat donation, then head to our website and click the PayPal link. A reminder of that new website URL yet again, rawuk.com. Big love and respect you all. Please keep supporting us. Hope you enjoyed the rest of the app. Hardcore set in over 18 years. Tickets 
surprised at only £14. Just search Facebook and Eventbrite for Return to Source Radio. This is Raw. Uh, my name's Tom Latcham. This is uh, Tony Coleman, London Electricity, the founder of Hospital Records. Uh, Tony, as mentioned, you grew up in London in the swing in the 60s and all the great music that came with that. How much do you credit that with your musical nature or tastes? Um, well, I was born in 61. So, yeah, they, I mean, the only thing on telly was Top of the Pops that, that had any music at all in the 60s. Um, my sisters used to listen to Radio Caroline, Radio London, which actually was a pirate before it got legalised. Um, and, I mean, I loved... I, I did love it. I loved I loved music. Even I remember when I was about... probably about the age of two, just lying in, lying in a cot in the kitchen. And my mum used to listen to the radio. And um, I remember Baby Love by the Supremes from an incredibly early age. So, yeah, I mean, you get influenced by what's around you. You really do. But I don't know why I went so esoteric and <laughs> avant-garde and like all of that. I don't know, but I did. Um, I'm glad I did. What, what was what was your upbringing like? Uh, tell us a little bit about your parents and your childhood. Were, were you was were you did they get you into music? Were they musical people? Um, <clears throat> okay, so my family was a a kind of classic post Victorian um, middle class family where any display of emotions was completely frowned upon. All right. And yeah, my mom was a music teacher. Um, so I had to learn piano and I failed grade two and just gave up. <laughs> uh, and this, this amuses my, my boys immensely because they, they get distinction in every exam they take on music. You know, it's like, <laughs> <clears throat> they love the fact that I failed grade two. Well, maybe when they've set up a, a massive international label, they can uh, they can sneer a bit more. I mean, come on, guys. Uh, I might not be able to play the piano, but... <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, the Secretary General now, he's, he's on, on the trumpet now, and he's got a, like a music scholarship. He's smashing oh, yeah. it. Wow, fantastic. So, um, and that's, that's great. But I mean, like, yeah, I was... I don't know. I think I instantly rebelled against what was then the norm in terms of music, which is classical music. Right, and I really rebelled against it. Even though now I listen to it quite a lot, but I just hated everything. I hated everything that my parents did. I hated, <laughs> I hated it. So I that's, why I that's why I went kind of avant-garde. I mean, in the seventies, my mum and dad hated anything with drums in. Um, <laughs> my mum's got perfect pitch, so she 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 can't listen to any singer who bends notes or, you know, so anything like Frank Sinatra or Elvis or Shirley Bassey, no, she couldn't deal with it. Oh, um, interesting. So I had that very, very kind of dry musical childhood that really was the perfect thing to rebel against and smash up. 
Okay, so you did rebel. You went down that avant-garde uh, guard route, and you set up Tongue and Groove, which is an acid jazz label, pretty avant-garde uh, acid jazz uh, generally. Um, acid jazz uh, is not avant-garde at all. Oh, well, um, it is to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's very middle of the road, if, if you listen to it. Um, but I mean, I went on a full yeah full journey. I went to I did performing arts at Middlesex. Um, specialise in music and I really got into that was where I really got into like systems music and minimalism and everything um I got into rare why did I get into rare groove rare groove was like the the kind of precursor to acid jazz uh I don't I don't know I was just I I was guitar was my instrument and I loved funk and soul um I, I guess that was it and I was good at it, and I was good at writing that music, and I knew the good musicians to write for and write with. So I got this kind of collective together called Is It, and actually our first record charted, which was quite cool, um, in 1988, a track called Stories, which is still good, actually. I'm really proud of that tune. I think we all did a great job on that. Um, and that actually got me addicted to running my own label well i mean that you can play it there <laughs> that, it, it did uh, well we'll play it <laughs> we yeah. always play we always play the tunes uh, that was a good intro out. there that was good that was a good tune intro you did, yeah yeah fantastic and yeah. um but but quite a, a long way from the jungle scene at that time um so i mean you've told the story loads of times we don't have to go masses into it but mm. it is it, it i find it really interesting that you leapt from running an acid jazz label into drum and bass were you a raver like was, was there any of that or what was it that, that attracted you to drum and bass at that point around about was it 95 96 well when i was doing is it in tunnel and groove i was in tottenham i had my rented to up to down and what one of the bedrooms upstairs, one of the two bedrooms was a studio of sorts. And the other one was kind of like my bedroom and office. Uh, in Tottenham, there was this kind of like hotbed of precursor to jungle, um, precursor to everything rave going on with Shut Up and Dance and people like that. Um, I was I was aware of it. And hearing some of it, I was so busy doing what I was doing with Is It and Tongue and Groove. Mm. I was purely focused on that. And it was very much a kind of almost live kind of music. You know, uh, we were touring a lot around the world, as is it. We had big success in Japan, which actually brought a whole load of cash in, which enabled later, enabled me to start Hospital Records up. Um because I didn't spend any of it. I was too scared to spend it. <laughs> you know, I've always been kind of very, very uh, careful with money, which I think is also part of the reason hospitals survived and grown. But um, the, the leap, it kind of happened in 1995. Um, I went on holiday to clear my head. I know, that's right. I've met a girl in Sydney when we played there and I wanted to go and see her again. Um, An age-old story. So, uh, yeah, did that, and I bought uh, Timeless on CD to put in my CD Walkman because it just came out. I had a special edition, double CD one. Uh, and that really kind of, 
that really opened my eyes. And I'd always wanted something like that because I'd been, even when I had Is, is It, I was writing tunes that were too fast, that were sort of 150 BPM, and they were too fast, and they were considered very uncool in the the frightfully kind of beard-stroking acid jazz world. Uh, and I was dying to be able to release these and record these fast tunes, and suddenly there was this music. It's like, wow, it operates at two tempos. It operates, the percussion's really fast, the bass line's really slow. I love it. Mm-hmm. So I knew that was me. I absolutely knew it. Um, you'd met Chris Goss, who's your co-founder at Hospital. He was a graphic mm-hmm. designer uh, at Tongue and Groove. What was yep. it about Chris that you just knew would work with you in terms um, of setting up this new venture? I didn't I didn't know. I mean, like, yeah, when I was running Tongue and Groove myself and really did the first Is It album, I needed a designer. Um, someone, someone referred me to Chris, and we got on really well. You know, I just liked his approach, very straight up, very honest, knows his tunes. And I asked him if he wanted to um, run Tongue and Groove with me. And I had no idea if we'd get on. I had no idea. It was just gut feeling. But we did. We did get on. And when when we decided to forget about tongue and groove and start a new label um we kind of we really had fun with concepts and coming up with label names and so forth and that would that was i think for many years that was the basis for our working relationship was really having fun brainstorming Mm. ideas and he also shared my philosophy which is we don't buy fast cars we don't uh, we don't spunk this cash. We save every penny because we never know where it's going to come from, and we put it into the label. And and how well has that stood you? I mean, we'll come on to this later, but how well has that stood you in the last year? <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you can never plan for a pandemic, but you do never know. <laughs> no, no. We'll we'll talk about the pandemic later because it's quite interesting. Actually, there's a few surprises. Okay. Um, and you didn't know how to make drum and bass, which I find mad. And you're like, we're going to start this label. I don't know how to do it, but I'm going to teach myself. And you learn and you yeah. teach yourself, which I've, is is remarkable, frankly. Um, how no, easy did not, you find not, it? Nobody knew how to drum, make drum and bass before they made drum and bass. I mean, that's the thing. Everyone in drum and bass, although actually I, would, I was, as a producer, I feel like I was quite a latecomer. Um but, but you came in around about when when it was moving to a, a like a digital age. So it's gone from an analog into digital, and so it is a computer program ultimately now that people use, um, yeah, which is very I, different from creating live music as you'd previously done. Yeah, even in tongue and groove and with is it, I was using an incredibly early version of Cubase on Atari right. um, and a, a sampler, Casio sampler with uh, two megabytes of RAM which was a lot then. Um, and you made it work, you know. So I was already kind of like, I was totally used to using, I think it was called Steinberg 24 then. Yeah, it wasn't even called Cubase. I, I was totally familiar with using that and MIDI sequencing and so forth. So it's kind of the same, but I got a better sampler, you know, and 
yeah, I taught myself what was good about teaching yourself to make something without any, there was no online tutorials or anything mm -hmm. like that. And what was good is that I obviously imparted a completely different flavor on it, which looking back on it, it was a good thing at the time. I was just, I didn't have a fucking clue how to make it sound like, like metalheads or moving shadow or you know how the fuck do they do i don't know <laughs> but i'm just going to do this weird lounge core shit you know well, it's interesting what, it's interesting head, that's know? that that's something i hear from uh, you know interviewed roughneck uh who basically helped to create gabba and he only accidentally created gabba or partly because he was trying to create detroit techno and he was like i didn't have the same equipment as the as the people that were doing it it was awful i mean, I mean it wasn't awful but it wasn't detroit techno but people seemed to like it and so they then ran with it and, and 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 so it's a sort of similar feeling from there what did you feel though about drum and bass and jungle scene that was not being served properly there was a gap that you could fill with your production and with your label i didn't i didn't feel that at all um i was just i just really really wanted to be accepted and to be a part of this and i knew that my kind of writing style and composition style was was very different i mean song in the key of knife it's about 12 minutes long um and it is a kind of it's a full jazz step opus, you know, it's like an epic. And that was that was my last roll of the dice because we weren't getting any success and um, it was a struggle. We were also making house music at the time on another label that we'd started called Galactic Disco, which was more popular. And we reached a point where we thought we've got to choose one or the other. And it's probably going to be Galactic Disco. But over the the Christmas um, Christmas period of 96, 97, I locked myself in the studio and came up with Song in the Key of Knife. And it was like, okay, this is this is totally us, this is me, this is my design. You know, to steal a quote from well, you, you've said in the, I've read in the past that you said that that was your your breakthrough in the scene. Prior to that, um, I've also said that you felt like an outsider, and you literally just said, "I, yeah. I, I wanted to be accepted." Uh, yeah. Earlier on in the interview, you mentioned there was a lot of uh, gangsterism. I've read that you've said there was a lot of politics in the past around that time. What, what, what sort of stuff were you referring to and how were you viewed uh, as this new act coming from a middle class white background into a scene which was created from the streets? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was created from the streets, but I mean, what I didn't know is that a lot of producers I really looked up to, like Ed Rush and Optical, Matrix, um, they all went to private school in London. They were posh boys, you know. I didn't go to private school. I went to state school. And uh, But you would never guess at the time they were posh boys because their music was really kind of like gnarly and kind of like, you know. Um, so we were, we were viewed as kind of um, sort of 
weird. I mean, people liked us. You know, I, I used to go down to to Black Market a lot and chat with Nicky and like, you know, buy really bad drum bass tunes most of the time because I didn't know what was good or bad. You know, I, w- I went went to Black Market once and Nicky wasn't there, but Ray Ray was there, Ray Keith, and um, he said, "Hello, can I help you?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm London Electricity." He said, "Oh, good. The fuse box is under here." And he, he thought I'd come to fix, <laughs> fix their, their wiring, you know. Um, so what you were sort of seen as a bit of a novelty, I suppose, at the start because you were doing this new, fresh thing, and yeah, I think so. People were slightly confused and bemused, but started <laughs> to buy our records, and it became a thing. And I think Chris and me, we put so much kind of energy and originality into the packaging mm. that was that was a really big we looked completely different from any label making drum and bass i'm really interested to to uh, to, to, to explore that because i i feel like drum and bass is now sort of the same but just in a modern age like so you know all of the artists sort of look into middle distance you know it's all monochrome it's all black and white you know it's uh all the logos are black against white you know i know it's very 20 2021 i get it but it's all incredibly dull as far as i as far as i can see and your stuff has not been dull it's a you know i, I watched a documentary where your graphic designer was talking about all the fun things that they did for for, for a lot of the sleeves oh, yeah. and all that Richard sort of made, stuff yeah. Yeah. um f- firstly you, you know how important is a name iconography styling graphics in 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 this world it's it's only important if you really have fun doing it um it doesn't work if you do it because you think you should do it and so it's got to come from the heart a bit like when you write music it's got to come from the heart and it's the same with design iconography i mean hospital the reason we settled on the name hospital we had a list of loads uh the hospital kind of stood out because we didn't even realize that what was the worst what what was the worst one you had the work oh fucking hell um (laughs) jesus the runner the runner-up was odd do you think you'd have achieved such success if it had been called odd no Wow, we would have run out of ideas. But the the reason we chose hospital was not because it it was an internationally known name. We had no, we didn't think about that. That was luck. But because a hospital has loads of departments, and we mm. we sort of knew that we could explore those departments conceptually, um, musically and graphically. So we knew that that had legs for us, and it did, and it still does. You know, we're still milking that. <laughs> it works, you know, compilations, sick music, mm. weapons of mass creation, plastic surgery. I mean, they're all kind of like, you know, they work really well. So Hospital also uh, creates uh, an image of, of, of trust. Uh, of safety uh, yeah. i suppose you know even even just in a sort of psych you know psychological way that you don't necessarily subconsciously you don't really think about that but it, i suppose now we're talking yeah. about it we didn't we didn't think about that and that was another we locked out on that um and yeah people you know people come to be healed to hospital they 
Well, you've you've said that before. I've read that in a previous interview. What does that mean? Well, literally, I mean, music, good music is spiritually healing. You know, there's no two ways about it that music is so important to get me, to get me through my life. And for most people who love music, for, for them to get them through their lives, to add another dimension it could be to get them through troubled times. It could be to help them celebrate. It could be just to relax or to get really, really excited by and just vent off in a club all night. You know, it's like music is there as a positive part of people's lives. And so any good music is healing. What do you make of the uh, now that sort of stuff that I said about that sort of standardised graphics that you get in the drum and bass scene i mean there there's there, by, by the way i should point out there is there does appear to be some change coming uh souped up records are a great example of this by the way with their oh yeah cartoony bright guy that's what we aim to do with raw uh was why we've got the the cartoons why we've got the bright colors the bold things you know because it mm. people remember that stuff and it, and it attracts attention and uh, in a way that if you are black and white monochrome it just doesn't yeah, I mean, Sue Top's a great example because, I mean, Mark and Benny are like, again, they they approach the whole kind of vibe with a sense of humour. You know, they take the piss out of themselves, take the piss out of each other, they take the piss out of their artists. You know, it's, it's wicked. It's really important, and people love that. You know, people love that. People love it when artists and labels don't appear to want to be cool and i think what you were saying about this kind of like ubiquitous black and white cool thing that's going on and that includes artist photos as well you know oh shall i shall i look that way <laughs> for this album oh okay album two i'm gonna look that way it's literally like that you know um so yeah that i mean people could do that that's fine they could they can do that. I don't care. It actually makes it easier for people to stand out mm. in the crowd. If everyone else is doing black, white, and grey, then if you're colourful, you stand out from the crowd. Is there? A, do you think there's a growing desire again? Because obviously, so, so it, there obviously wasn't agreement that everyone's going to go right. We're going to be monochrome and look into middle distance. It's just some, it's a trend that happened, right? So, do you think that there's now a trend coming out of that where people are like, you know what? I'm bored of that. I want more vibes and colors and, and, there, always, and it, there always has been to be honest and i mean i was born a rebel in a way and i've always applied that in the early days the reason that me and chris went for that look was partly because we could afford it we had to do something that was really cheap how can you do something that's distinctive and cheap in 1996 97 when everybody else was was having those kind of like I can't remember the designer's name, but they all had very similar artwork and flyers that were very black, angry, red, and green, with aliens on and you know and skulls and kind of like it was like that was the ubiquitous look of drum and bass. Aside from good, good looking, which was a bit coffee table for my tastes, um, we wanted something completely different, very organic. So we just thought, yeah, twelve inch sleeve. If we reverse it, it's not glossy because everyone else is being glossy. We don't want to be glossy. Um, reverse it. We can't afford to have picture bags. Um, what can we do? 
I will will cut out the H and have that. Well, yeah, but what else? Oh, what's cheap? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the pe people who print stickers for prescriptions, um, that'll give us a look. <laughs> it'll be organic. So found out who it was from my local pharmacy, local chemist in Tottenham. Went to see them in uh, in Halston. And they could they could bang off like a thousand stickers for about fifteen quid, and we we filled in the sticker with our image writer printer, like a dot matrix printer, which is what chemists use, or they did back then, you know. So it was an authentic kind of prescription <laughs> sticker that went with the cutout H and was really cheap to do, and we could do it, and it was visually unique and the antithesis of everything else that was going on in terms of the look um, of drum and bass labels. Well, you, you, you've sort of touched upon it earlier, but I, I've read it in another interview as well. Great story. You set up the studio and label and live there with your partner in what sounds like a pretty basic home. Um, it, it, these sort of sacrifices that you made that, Lot that you say that people need to make uh, ventures like this work. Do you, do you miss those early days? Oh yeah, it was so exciting. I mean, there's the most enjoyable and exciting part of the journey is when you really don't know what's around the corner, and when there's a few of you. I mean, it was really, really exciting in the kind of two thousands when there was. Uh, there was a kind of core of five or six of us and we were all telepathically um, intuitive. You know, we didn't have to have meetings to decide things. We just knew. We knew how each other thought. We had a laugh. Um, we had a table tennis table and we always down tools and had a game at 3 p.m. <laughs> a little mini tournament and it was brilliant because it you know your head i mean i was at that time i was doing as well as a and r and writing my own music and djing i was doing all the business affairs so i was doing all the accounting i was doing all the contracts um must have been good. <laughs> yeah but i loved it because i was prepared to do it i don't i mean i don't love to being an accountant i hate it but i learned that if you need to do something you've got to enjoy doing the bits that you maybe don't want to do so you find you game it you gamify it i gamified the accounting and gamified doing contracts and royalty how, how on earth do you gamify doing <laughs> accounting <laughs> well you, you have to to stay sane you know it's about it's about beating the system and it's about kind of like not being overwhelmed by it and just it's not none of it's rocket science it's just graft well, we'll come on to how the the label develops in the next part. But when did it finally become a proper job for you, where you could focus on it rather than doing other bits of work, which you did in the early years of hospital formation? Yeah, the very early years, I was writing music for kind of corporate videos and um, things like that, which is quite fun actually, uh, in a sort of Alan Partridge kind of way, you know. Um, but I think, I mean, actually, when I started to DJ, 
I didn't start DJing until 96. I'd always played in live bands and I, I thought, oh, I'm going to have to DJ. This is drum and bass, you know, I'm gonna have to learn. <laughs> so I did. And that, after a couple of years, started, you know, started to earn a little bit of money. Um, but I, I knew that I had to do it full time to make it work. I couldn't rely on a part time job or a day job or anything like that. I had to jump off that cliff to make this all work. And I had jumped off that cliff really a few years before then. So, um, and how did it feel to know that this was your fo uh, sole focus? Scary, really scary, but brilliant. Absolutely brilliant in the early days to like, you know, having written so much music throughout my life because I didn't, I didn't start to make any money until I was 32 years old. Right. And that wasn't making loads, but it was making enough money to live off from music. Well, how did you survive before that? Teaching. Right. And before that, the doll. <laughs> a lot of people have been helped into this game by the doll. Yeah. The one the one good thing the one good thing that um Thatcher's government did in the eighties was they did this thing called the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, which actually enables you to come off the doll, get more money than you would have got on the doll from from the government, and you were allowed to actually build a business of sorts. And that was a massive help. Mm. It really was. Wow. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I quite. I don't know if such a thing exists anymore. I mean, you've sort of got Kickstarter, which exists, but whether it's the same, I don't know. Well, listen, we're going to talk about uh, more about how hospital developed and your latter career, and also, which we teased a little bit earlier, what the last year's been like. You say there's been surprises, yeah. so there's oh, yeah. more coming up with uh, London Electricity, Tony Coleman, and me, Tom Latcham, here on Raw. that's it for another episode of Raw and if you like what you've heard we'd love you to get involved all of us here at Raw HQ buzz hard off how much you the Raw crew enjoy our work and your generous cash donations have been a huge help since our launch but we're now a team of five putting in combined 80 hours a week for no wages we've got loads of plans to go further expand our team and offer but that does mean that our costs are also increasing so we could really use your help to keep Raw growing and developing as you've done since we started so please do check out our website initially it's rawuk.com for interesting extra content and to get your hands on our first ever range of raw merchandise that's rawuk.com we've also launched a new membership scheme where you can donate to create more interesting and fun content on an ongoing basis and you'll even get stuff in return so head to patreon.com forward slash rawukpods that's patreon.com forward slash rawukpods to see what's on offer you can also join our YouTube membership, which is the same. Or if you're not bothered about membership, but you'd like to support us with a few quid as a one-off or a repeat donation, head to our website and click the PayPal link. That website URL, one more time, rawuk.com. Respect to you for your support and for getting to the end of this episode. Please keep supporting us and help ensure there's more quality content coming your way on a regular basis. Oi, oi. Raw. Raw. Raw.